Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. All right. Thanks for coming on the show today, Devin. It's been a long time and I'm glad you're on today and that we get to talk finally. So you are the future chief of the Grand Coulee Dulac Band of the... I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly. Yeah. Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. Yeah. It's the Grand, that's almost right. Yeah. It's the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. Okay. Grand Caillou. Grand Mm -hmm. Caillou. Uh, So yeah, that's me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. We have been talking for a little while. Um, I remember I came across your your podcast on Facebook and was super excited to talk to you uh, and and just have a conversation. Uh, I always advocate for the tribes down south and any chance I get, um, I want to talk about them. So I'm glad you had me on. Yeah, and that's that's one of our main goals of our podcast is to just have conversations and highlight other scientists and their stories and their research and all the things that they're up to. So I know that you've done a lot of GIS work. Mm-hmm. And is that currently what you're working on right now? Yeah. So right now I got some summer funding through the college to continue working on the coastal land loss. Um, so originally when I started this work, it was actually a school project. Um, I was actually auditing classes at Williams College. It was when I was trying to get in. Uh, and I went into this mastering GIS class, and the project was super open-ended. It was lab-based. Um, the, lab, the class was lab-based, and the final project was open-ended for us to decide what we wanted to do because GIS is such a powerful tool that can answer so many questions. And me and another friend who was actually from Louisiana decided to uh, use my tribe as a way to study coastal land loss. Um, and we ended up doing some of that and looking at my tribe specifically uh, and seeing that the rates of land loss really did disproportionately affect Native American tribes down south. So uh, the context behind that is that a lot of Natives were moved into what the Acadians thought were unlivable lands. Um, and a lot of the lands that they live in and reside in currently now are the most unlivable um, And so we kind of proved that in this summer, um, I'm continuing uh, doing better work. I'm using better satellite imagery with a a finer resolution. Um, So normally satellite images have about a 30 meter by 30 meter resolution for each pixel. And uh, this time around, I'm using about 15 by 15 meter resolution and using some other multiband spectra like ultraviolet light, which is really good at looking at inundation. And so the problem with Louisiana's coast is that um, rather than some of the other coasts where there's a clear line where the coast is, Louisiana is just this wet and muddy and marshy place that has ponds and um, big lakes kind of ridden all over the place. And it's really flat and right in sea level. Um, so it's kind of hard to distinguish, you know, what is coastline and what is not. And so this time around, I'm, I'm using multiband spectra and also a finer resolution to kind of get a clear picture of that. And also incorporating my tribe again, but also other tribes that are around. So. Hmm. Wow. So are you primarily looking at the changes in the la- the land cover? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking, um, I want to look maybe about a four or five different timelines. I haven't really decided yet. Um, uh, especially with some of the most recent satellite imagery, uh, I've gotten it from Sentinel satellites, uh, which are European satellites that they've put up. Um, and yeah, so that's what I'm looking at. Hmm. That that's something that I've thought was some of the coolest type of analysis is mm-hmm. looking at the different bands of light. 
and looking yeah. at the satellite imagery and just how crazy detailed those pictures can get. It, yeah, it, it still blows my mind. It's really cool. I remember looking at some of the data online and just seeing, you know, they have some that are classifications that they tell you this kind of land is this kind of land already. And just seeing like the data that's there uh, is pretty incredible. It's, it's so fine. Um, and it's so fine. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so is that your primary, primarily your experience in GIS was with the satellite imagery or have you done another type of GIS. And for, for anyone out there listening, GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. Or so that's what I've heard it. Have mm-hmm. you heard of a, any other definition no, for that acronym? No, I Maybe. haven't. And just, just for a little bit more context, GIS is also a, a data layering map system. So it's a way to make maps with uh, data. So let's say you take a satellite image and then you also take some data of the highways around. You can put those data together and you can see a map of the highways, just like a regular map. Same thing with uh, topography, um, forest cover. Um, You can look at migratory patterns of birds, coastal land loss, for example. Um, It's just a way to take data, different sets of data, and overlay them and see them visually. Uh, And so that's what GIS is. And that's why it's so powerful. Um, Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I've had, uh, this is my main experience with GIS. Um, I also recently got the chance uh, this past summer uh, to go to Harvard. Um, they, I got to just off the cuff work at Harvard for a little bit. Um, I was working with this guy named Scott, uh, who I did a little bit. We, I didn't spend enough time to really get into a major project, but I did a little bit looking at uh, the Amazon rainforest and uh, leaf uh, and what they call the leaf area index, which just shows how much vegetation oh, cool. there is. Yeah. Did you get uh, to go down there? Uh, was no. It, all? Oh, it was just kind of GIS space. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it would have been super cool because his crew does go down to South America to get like drone yeah. footage. Yeah, I was just going to say, I wouldn't be stuff. surprised. I mean, yeah. that's probably the, one of the coolest things about being a scientist is right. to go to travel to amazing places. I think that's why geoscience really captured me so much. Um, it, it is what I'm majoring in in school uh, is because, you know, you studied the world. And at that mm. point, the world is kind of your playground with, with science. So I think that's the coolest thing. It is. I've, I've loved maps ever since I was a little boy. That, mm-hmm. that was actually my first obsession. The first thing that I was super into when I was a kid that I remember, besides like G.I. Joe's or something, was <laughs> yeah. maps. And my mom would used to go on trips and she's a scientist and she'd go places and she'd always ask us what she want to her to bring back. And I, I'd always want a map from that place awesome. of that awesome. spot. And, and I would just sit there and look at them, even though I didn't even know yeah. where that place was relatively speaking to where I was, but there was just something about them. And I, I love the fact that I was able to get into that and do that professionally for a while. And that is cool. I really like the way you break, broke it down. The, the whole, that was, a, I think, a better elevator speech than I could have given about. <laughs> but that, yeah, I think, that gets me thinking geospatial science. That was the other, or geospatial uh, information systems is another yeah. potential definition. But I think geographic is the most well-known one. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, going back to kids, like thinking of the geoscience aspect, I've always kind of been interested in time. 
like time has always been such an interesting and mysterious thing for me. Um, mm. And when I was a kid, dinosaurs were probably the thing that I loved the oh, most. Oh, yeah. Love dinosaurs <laughs> uh, and yeah. still do, still do. I don't study dinosaurs, but uh, my fascination with them and time has persisted all throughout my life. And I think even now in my project, seeing how land loss happens over time uh, is just this wonderful and mysterious thing to look at uh, that has real societal impact. Hmm. You know what? I lied earlier. Okay. Mine was dinosaurs. Yes, I, yeah. Mine was dinosaurs. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember looking at dinosaur books and I still have some of those dinosaur books. Yeah. And I think even the thing that even dinosaurs and maps have in common is time. You mm-hmm. know, it's kind of a, a capture in time. A map shows you a specific point in time. Even now, you know, some maps from from, you know, 10 years ago are outdated. Uh, same thing with dinosaurs. They're just it's just a picture of them from way in the past, millions and millions of years ago. And I just think that's so interesting. I love time. Yeah, time. It's a really important variable, but it's one of the most tricky ones mm-hmm. to try and deal with. Definitely. It's so important though. And it's, that's prob- probably one of the most amazing part, uh, uses of GIS, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. looking at those aerial photography or satellite imagery over time. And seeing how the landscape changes. That was one of my first experiences too. Similar to you, I was looking at vegetation change over time. Oh, nice. And, but I was using aerial photography and we had to do the, that thing where you put the photos next to each other. Mm-hmm. And you had to look through those crazy goggle things. And what's that called? A stereo oh, the- spectroscopy? Stereos- yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Stereo spectroscopy. I think that's right. But very cool. But that was, we couldn't, we couldn't really get the goggles to work. So we figured out a different way to do it. <laughs> oh, but, nice. But it was a lot of fun. And that I think is the key takeaway I got that was, I didn't really know that I wanted to do that kind of work until mm-hmm. I went and tried it out and actually had to perform and produce something like a paper and, and have some quality to it. So right. Why, what got you into interested in gis i know like i was super obsessed mm-hmm. with maps when i was a kid but what what do you, do you think you could put it down to one thing or was it like a burning passion that you've had for a long time sure i think whenever you're younger geography is not something that you think about oh i, I want to <laughs> do geography like i you know i, I love it so much or maybe yeah. you do i don't know yeah um but for me that wasn't that wasn't really there um what really got me interested in gis was after doing the final project and seeing how impactful I can make presentations um, and having science that's not only personal to me, but interdisciplinary, because um, it also incorporates the human perspective inside of it, uh, especially with my own perspective in coastal land loss. Um, and I think that's where the burning passion came from, was the ability to use that science to really advocate uh, for my tribe and, and do something meaningful, impactful for my community. I think that's where the passion came from for me. Yeah, and and you're the future chief of your tribe, so that's that's, that's a right. whole another level of responsibility. That did, and mm-hmm. were you have you been aware of that since you were a little kid that you're going to be the chief, or is this something that you get selected as when you're older? Yeah, so it was. Um, so my cousin is currently the future chief. She uh, she had it passed down to her from her uncle, um, and when I was twelve, uh, I can remember that. Uh, my mom took me over to her house one day and we were just supposed to spend the night and just be together as family. And I remember we stayed up for a long time, just 
talking. Like I remember having such an adult conversation with her at such a young age. Um, and I was very curious about the tribe and why she did the things she did. Um, and, and I wanted to know more and I, I just wanted to be engaged with it. And she saw how engaged I was and, and, um, how passionate I was at such a young age. And, and she saw it in me. And at that point that, that maybe I could go on and, and, and do some good things. And I think it was, she said it was that night. She felt like, um, this is her story, not mine. She felt like the, the ancestors helped her in, in making the decision that, that maybe I could do something better for the tribe and maybe I can take on good leadership. Um, and so she's currently, you know, she always describes it as she's fighting the good fight so I can have an easier time whenever I, I'm, I become chief because there's a lot of problems down south with the tribe, um, with the government, you know, uh, and some other things. Uh, so that's kind of the story behind that. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how you bring that up, that, that she says that the ancestors helped her make that decision. Mm-hmm. And that, that it's easy to, and there's a side of me that just wants to chalk that up to the kind of new age, woo-woo kind of stuff. Sure, sure. But as the, the scientist part of me is like, well, what, what's really going on there? There's something mm-hmm. going on there. And my immediate inclination is to think, well, that's intuition, that gut feeling type mm-hmm. of thing. Definitely, and, definitely. And in a very, a very interesting way, we science through with a scientific lens, we can explain that that totally is something coming from our ancestors through that genetic memory, that that instinctual ability we have to be able to take in data and information from other people, from our environment. And, and then I'll process that with our emotions and our thoughts and all of this, all these different tools that we've been given that that's our evolution. That's our biology. And yeah. It's very deeply tied to our ancestors and their actions and all that other, all the, how they use those same tools. So that's right. It's, uh, it's really fascinating to me how a lot of these things, although you can't really make any kind of causal, correlations we can't really say Mm -hmm. that that's the cause we'd have to measure it to really say that for sure but it's an interesting idea and it really Mm -hmm. that's a part of why i love science so much is its ability to explain how things work right it's it's so fun and it's so exciting yeah the science the the scientific method has gotten us so far in life i mean look 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 where we are now we're having a conversation many many miles away you know um Mm, yeah and that would never be possible without the scientific method, learning that this is how this thing works and, and we can use and manipulate it this way and, and, and we need to test and, and retest and see if it's uh, the same. And I think, you know, science has gotten us really far. Look at, um, you know, you could say a whole lot of things about Elon Musk. Look at the spaceship that he just put up in space. You know, they're talking about like yeah. commercial flights and stuff. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's super cool. You know, science is, has gotten us far so far and, it's only been, you know, within the past hundred years that we've gotten to the place, even less that we've gotten to the place where we are now. Imagine where we'll be, you know, 100, 200 years away if this year doesn't get any more crazy, um, you know. Yeah. yeah, and I always need like velociraptors with laser beams, <laughs> sharknadoes, and some kind of an alien thing, and they will have a complete, complete. of crazy <laughs> things that happen this year. Yeah, definitely. No, we need we need nano machines too. I mean, I think the list would be pretty big at this point. There's so yeah. many crazy things that could happen. 
I mean, you know, it's funny how much science fiction has played a role in in the development of science. And I mean, that just goes to show, you know, what the human imagination is really capable of. Like we can imagine things uh, so far into the future, we feel like they may never exist. But, you know, come to find out that we can make those things happen, like FaceTime. I remember there are some old shows that, you know, had this futuristic technology where you could see each other on a screen. And that was like, wow, Mm. you know, how could that ever happen? And here we are now having a conversation with each other, you know, imagine what's, what's to come. I think it, it, science and the imagination uh, are great. And I think some people nowadays um, separate the two that science and imagination and creativity are two separate things, but really they are one and the same. I think the best part about my project is that it has allowed me to be my full creative self um, and also be involved in science and training my brain. And I think that's, that's really the beauty of science is, is imagination. It is. I know there's some really cool Einstein quotes that I don't know off the top of my head about yeah. that. That it's very much tied to our creativity and imagination. And the the more I've learned about science and the, especially psychology and human behavior and our evolution, and and then just looking at how we behave now and looking at how as best I can anyway, looking at how I behave mm-hmm. with the, as critical lens as I can. The more I've done that, the more I've learned that humans were not really intelligent. We're, there's this huge illusion that humans are smart. Right. We're not really intelligent. We're not smart, but we're very, very creative. And That's right. We're, we're endless, endlessly adaptive. And so that's given us this illusion that we're intelligent creatures, which, but I mean, that, that that's really semantical. I think so. I mean, you, if you look at the definition of intelligence, then yes, we could definitely say we're intelligent, but it's also a relative thing. I think we're smarter than we are. We think we are, I guess is sure. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And myself I think included. Even, yeah. Yeah. I think even like, uh, I remember watching a video about um, monkeys and apes. Uh, they, uh, in some respects are even more intelligent than us. There's mm-hmm. a game that you play where uh, numbers pop up on a screen. And it'll be like one, two, three, four, five. And humans can go up to maybe about 10 or 12 or something like that where they pop up on a screen and you can accurately decide where they go. Um, but like a bonobo or a bonobo, I can't remember exactly what it is, or some kind of chimpanzee um, can go all the way up to 32. Um, and I think that mm. just shows wow. that just shows that like, you know, in the wild, if you see a bunch of jaguars, you know, you need to immediately assess your situation and then decide what you're going to do. And so that part of their brain has remained that way. But ours, mm. we've, we've sacrificed that for uh, more creativity and more sociability with one another, better communication skills. And so our brain ha- did not take a monkey's brain and just keep building on. We've made small sacrifices along the way. Um, and so everybody in, you know, everyone in the animal kingdom is, is intelligent in their own unique way. Um, we've just been able to unlock our creativity uh, a little bit. Even elephants have the capacity to be creative. Um, You've seen all the great elephant paintings online, um, Mm -hmm. all of the cool stuff that they've been able to make. Uh, So yes, I think that's true. Yeah. Especially when you know that an elephant did it, it put it, it just, it's really, and, and when, with with art and if you're an artist yourself it tends to give you a different perspective on expression and so knowing that an elephant that's their ex- something that came from inside is just amazing but 
who are we to know they're not just copying us so that sure, sure. That, that's another i don't know i don't know what kind of research they've done on that but i would think just understanding how deep and how big their memories are it would make sense that they could come up with something that's based off of a past experience or uh, a series of patterns in their life or something yeah even uh even babies we talk about babies monkey see monkey do you know, babies are what their environment is, and babies learn to be humans because we we teach them. Uh, same thing with other animals. Hmm. And um, that. So I wonder sometimes about that, though. Mm-hmm. If sure, if uh, like because there's there's always there's that that age old argument between nurture versus nature. Where, yes, where do you yes. where do you sit on that? Do you think that it's primarily nature or primarily nurture as far as mm. behavior and culture or these other le- more uh, more or less tangible things? Yeah, well, it seems like I definitely fall more on the nurture side. Um, you know, we talk about um, uh, let's say uh, disciplining a child. You know, if you let's say you have two different people and one person was raised. Um, uh, was disciplined out of fear, you know, uh, and uh, they were, as a child, were raised, uh, you know, they got weapons, you know, they um, were, you know, maybe there was a leaf blower that their parents would scare them with to get them to, to be in control. Uh, that same person will, will do the same thing to their child, uh, learn to control out of fear. Um, but if you had somebody who was maybe more, uh, whose parents were more loving and, and peaceful and decided to take the time to, to nurture and show them that, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. Um, you know, maybe have a timeout or something, but kind of show a little bit more love and care. That person will kind of uh, grow up to, to learn to show more love and care towards one another and not uh, control out of fear, but out of love and respect. Um, at, at least as far as I've been able to discern, uh, uh, so I kind of fall more on the nurture side, especially when you talk about being shaped by your environment. Um, now, we could talk nowadays about native people. Uh, people often talk a lot about blood memory um, and how we as a people have become more adaptable um, because of what our ancestors went through during the colonization. Uh, people often have those, those kinds of conversations. Um, and so, you know, I kind of fall more towards nurture, but you know, there could be a dichotomy between those two and that it is kind of both, you know, just like life and nothing is really black and white. Everything is kind of a spectrum. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of where I fall. Yeah. And just like black and white, one wouldn't exist without the other. Right. One right. defines the other. And I, that's where I, how I feel about it also that there, and it seems to be that way with everything. Have you ever heard of that? this there's a theory i'm not sure if it's a theory maybe it's just mm-hmm. i i could be misusing that that word but it's a in physics it's called supersymmetry yeah i have heard of that and, and it's this notion that the universe at one point was symmetrical and that it now it's that drives a lot of the processes in the universe is that constant striving toward symmetry hmm. but nothing ever gets there so it's that balance. Everything is trying to get it. Everything from stars maintaining that, what is it, a hydrostatic equilibrium? Or yeah. To either crush out or explode. Right, right. Or crush in or explode out. 
all the way down to a cellular level mm -hmm. where there there's a homeostasis that needs to be maintained there also and i see that with everything with humans and even even in my personal life it seems like most of my problems come down to something is out of balance and mm -hmm. it's not that it, because, because not like i said nothing ever really gets balance but it's right. when it's too far out out of balance that's when things get too bad that that when it's too extreme right and that i definitely see that going on at almost every level everywhere it, especially in our current society with current problems going on a lot of it has to do with a lack of balance mm -hmm. and that's a tough that's tough because it's balance is very contextual it's very place-based so tr trying to come up with solutions for everybody is really hard but it, it's actually that is one of our, the challenges like one of our mandates as scientists is to work together to come up with generalizable solutions that's really tough though with um with such complex problems that's true i mean even human emotions are so complex and can be off balance so easily you know especially nowadays uh people find that their emotional states are so much more varied nowadays um and i often think about it like in terms of like uh, emotional and, and logical you know mm. if you're too emotional, you can let your emotions really take control of yourself and be out of balance. But also, you can be too logical and not let your emotions take over enough. Like science, like um, science when it comes to analyzing culture, um, can often uh, lack empathy. Um, and it's important to balance the emotional and logical side. So you can also be empathetic while also being logical. And I think as a balanced person, it's important to try and balance your logic and emotions together. Um, I think like nowadays media is so consuming towards people because it plays into people's emotions. It's like a dopamine boost. You keep getting dopamine shots mm. whenever you scroll through media and Twitter and stuff. And nowadays yeah. there's so much going on, you know, especially partisan politics plays such a big issue um, that people just, uh, their emotions fire up and they just let their emotions kind of consume them, which is why it's so important to kind of take a step back from media sometimes and just kind of, rebalance yourself um so that's that's what i think about whenever i think about balance in, in today's world mm. yes man i totally agree i i have to stay off of social media because it for one i waste my time too much on there mm -hmm. number two I, I i've noticed a very tangible effect in my physical my physical stature, my physical feelings that I have in my body, but then my, th my thinking patterns. And, uh, and I, it's, it's, I find myself getting frustrated too easily too. So I just like, no, it's not worth it. I found this really cool app though on, or it's not an app. It's a uh, browser extension for mm -hmm. Chrome where you just install it and it replaces your face, Facebook newsfeed with just a random quote for the day. Really, so I still use it to communicate with people. I can still use it for business reasons and other because it's really useful. It's one of the it's really useful. But the that news feed, I noticed that was the thing that was where it was sucking my. It was almost yep. like this. What is that? That that like an incubus just sucking my life force away. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had to manage it. I because I could. I wasn't doing a good enough job doing it. Yeah. When it was there, it's like <clears> that. Uh, what's that? Uh, almost like an addict. You can't expect an addict to be okay with when there's a drawer full of heroin right mm -hmm. down the hallway 
they're 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 gonna they're not gonna do well. Right, right. And it's the dopamine, you know, because it's our it's our brains, you know, we are trained to to want dopamine. And because we have um sacrificed survival for comfortability, because we live more in comfortability now than we are in survival mode. That's not true everywhere. Um but as a society, you know, more and more yeah. people are more comfortable um, and we're looking for that dopamine because, you know, in, in, you know, back in the day, your dopamine would come from a great kill that you would get. Uh, uh I, I'm not hearing you, Devin. I don't know if you got muted or what's up with that. Oh, it's saying the Internet connection is unstable. Oh, OK. Uh, it's coming back. It didn't cut it off. Okay. So I think we're good. Good now? Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh where where'd you last hear me? You were talking something about dopamine and and survival and meat at some point. Yeah, you were saying that the that that was our, our main source was much more physically oriented things definitely the hunting. Yeah aspect yeah whereas now you, you sit and it's constant yeah i think yeah i think that would be my main point yeah that it's hard to reconcile how to deal with this stuff because it's so new but it's so i mean it's one of those things that people are just like yeah it's no big deal we have it mm-hmm. <laughs> it's everywhere but uh but but st- stopping for a second asking the the questions about how should we manage this stuff because I can imagine when people have invented knives for the first time, some people were getting yeah. cut unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can imagine that's a very similar issue to why social media is causing so much problems. And there's a lot of research right now about how much damage it's doing to young people, especially teenagers and especially young girls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just looking at how bullying works and how it's different right. between girls and boys and how boys will physic typically i mean there's always difference there's always exceptions to the rule mm-hmm. but sure typically young boys will be physical with their altercations whereas young girls will typically be more social kind of anti so not anti-social but like mm-hmm. gossip and reputation right. destruction and i remember seeing that when i was a kid and it mm-hmm. happens as adults too but it just takes on maybe you could call it a more refined form when Mm -hmm. when we do it as adults but and there's uh there's there's legal consequences once you're an adult too so the physical altercations slow down sure but um uh yeah that and so now uh because it that it's a social media platform and you can't turn it off the bullying never stops for right. young girls whereas the right. boys typically use phones and other things they're using it for video games and things mm-hmm. like that and uh, not really for the social media they use the social media but that's not their primary concern right when they're on the phone right so it's it's uh, it's a problem and these, these aren't my opinions these are these are re- re- people that research this stuff beha- behavioral mm-hmm. psychologists and stuff like that yeah and even um unrestricted internet access you know people talk about parental control nowadays and it's like oh you know i i don't want to control my kid and stuff but you know kids we got to nowadays are are, i mean the whole world is open to them on the internet you know which some Mm -hmm. can argue like oh sure like they're gonna see it anyway but sometimes it's it's really bad you know like i'll give you i'll I'll give you a real good example of um there's uh my brother's uh my brother's um 
other brother, littler brother, he uh, goes on Roblox a lot and he loves oh, Roblox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is infamous for a couple of different reasons. And there, uh, you know, at one point he could go into like a, a, a sex room where there are Roblox characters, you know, just doing stuff. And who knows what age those kids are just kind of being in there. Not only that, but also uh, there are real predators online who, you know, just can be involved in that. Um, you know, you could see some real crazy videos online, things that young kids shouldn't be so exposed to at such a young age. Um, and I think, yeah. I think unrestricted internet access is, is kind of a dangerous thing for some kids to play with um, nowadays. Yeah. For sure. I know on YouTube, if, if you don't, if there's not some kind of a block of some kind, man, there's crazy stuff you can see on there. There's things mm-hmm. I, I can't unsee that I you know, I know. I think it is important to watch brutal, hardcore things from time to time to remind yourself what things can be like. Sure, but that, that is no really not any replacement for actually having experienced that stuff. Right, but it, anyways, it's for at a certain age, man. Kids just aren't ready for that. Yeah, and it can yeah. really mess them up and the way they perceive reality. So, yeah, I I let my kids on YouTube, but I'm. I have blocks and they're only allowed certain channels. And other than that, I do my best and I try to, I restrict their internet access and I Mm -hmm. talk to them about what they're seeing and, and then tell them the reality that there's some pretty hardcore people out there and and they're very devious and they'll do almost anything to get what they want. Yeah, that is true. And so you got to protect yourself. So they know not to give their names. They know not to give numbers or addresses or anything. Now, once kids get to a teenage age, they start to purposely do things that you tell them not to do. Sure, yeah. It's a part of maturing and uh, learning how to uh, make your own decisions. So it's a healthy thing. But, man, in the age of the Internet, it's yeah. a dangerous thing. So that I, I would say that the, my role for my kids is if you can prove to me that you're responsible enough to get a driver's mm-hmm. license, then that shows me you're responsible enough to manage a smartphone. Right. And, and I, th- I think I think the same way. You know, I feel like when you come to an age where you show a little bit of personal responsibility, and it's also you know you're you're teaching your kids as they grow up. You know, and if you yeah. if you teach your good kids good morals and responsibilities, you can trust them to be a functioning person in the world, and you can you can give them you know more access to things. And I think that's true. Hmm. Is that something that that you struggle with or did uh, did you grow up with cell phones or do you remember when there weren't cell phones i did i definitely was one of those kids who had unrestricted internet access mm-hmm. um now i feel like i used it in a very productive way well i say pro- i say productive <laughs> yeah. but i also would be on minecraft for like 48 hours straight <laughs> at some point yeah so hey, that's productive you probably made some pretty sweet <laughs> I tunnels did. and uh, yeah. castles, right? <laughs> I did. I made great houses and stuff. Like yeah. I, you know, um, I love organizing in Minecraft. Like I'll have all my chests organized, and I only learned that from spending so much time in Minecraft. But anyway, you know, like I was one of those kids with uh, unrestricted internet mm-hmm. access. But you know, I, I even talk about now. Like I feel like I personally learned more from YouTube than I did from my old high school. Um, it was YouTube that and the internet that really taught me a lot of what I know today. Like it wasn't. 
it wasn't my high school that was really teaching me about black holes and some of the other space stuff. Space was also super interesting to me when I was young. Um, and it was YouTube that taught me a lot of the world and history and, and things that I know today because it was just so fascinating. I got a lot of the information that I wanted from the internet. And in some ways, you know, internet access unrestricted can be good, but it's also important to be cautious too. So. Yeah. That reminds me of a, I don't know who this saying comes from, but I got it from this guy named Brian Tracy. You ever hear of him? He's like an old school self-help kind of guy. I think he's still alive, but he's really old now. But he had this book. What was it? I think it's called Accelerated Learning Techniques. I read long, long, like 10 years ago or something. But uh, that's one of his main messages is you got to learn how to learn. It's yep. not so important to learn, like learn specific topics. Yeah. Yeah. There are certain topics that are really important. Things like math and language and writing and things, but mm-hmm. the, uh, and I would argue history, but in speaking, a lot of people, yeah. another thing they don't teach in school is how do how do you adequate, adequately present yourself mm-hmm. and share your ideas with other people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's that that reminds me of that learn how to learn. And if you don't do that before you go on the internet, that is what makes it potentially dangerous, not just for the people you'll run into, but also for your own learning journey. Right. On places like YouTube, which is an awesome resource. And I likewise I get a lot of my information on YouTube and I do a mm-hmm. lot of research on there. But if you don't know how to learn, then you're gonna it's really easy to start believing in things like the flat earth theory yeah right um, youtube videos because you can get it stuck on a bubble just like any other information platform that's true learning how to learn and making sure that whenever you're learning that you go look at the people that disagree with you and listen to them too and at least think about their ideas and compare them to yours and figure out what works and what makes the most sense well, that's right. That's why science has gone so far, because it's had such an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, yeah. A lot of our biggest accomplishments have come from the interdisciplinary uh, view that we have, that we can have about things. And it's important. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, um, so I took, a, I took a class this semester, or this past semester, and it was called Trump and American World Policy. Um, and it was like, oh, sorry, what was that? Uh, Trump, Trump and Trump American World Policy. And yep. American World Policy. So oh, it was about it was it was about Trump and his world policy and and yeah. world policy overall, uh, and the best part about the class was it was completely unbiased. Um, we got uh, articles for every week um, from both views, um, and it was up to us to decide whether or not that uh, that we what we aligned with and what our opinions were. And it was what it really taught me was that it's important to look at both sides and see all of the information and form your opinion on those, you know, Hmm. whatever side you fall on. um, It's important to look at both sides either way. Uh, And I think that helps develop a deeper perspective about things and and a a more formulated opinion. Yeah, it does. And in your, in that class did what's, so what sources did you guys get the articles from? Yeah, so like Politico uh, was one. Um, I can't remember. It was a couple of um, a couple of different news articles, uh, but I remember Politico being being one of the ones. Um, I actually have my uh, my course packet right here. I can tell you. Okay. Yeah, I'm always looking for new sources, but I'm curious to mm-hmm. to because you say unbiased, but that really depends on who's writing the articles. Sure. Yeah. Every, uh, the articles that we've seen, um, 
were biased on both sides. Mm-hmm. The class overall was unbiased because they never told us what uh, what they thought personally about Trump or, or some of these issues. Um, but it was uh, that's the, good. Articles can be opinionated. Um, so one of them was the New York Times. Um, just stuff from the New York Times. Let's see some other ones. Uh, this was just some some books. So they have some books that came out um, mm-hmm. that people would write about um, policy analysis. This is from the Cato Institute. Um, oh, okay, I, I know I've heard that might, been, that might have been a study or or something. Um, but yeah, there are a couple of them. Um, this one, yeah, some more New York Times articles. Uh, this is Foreign Affairs. That's a, a good article uh, mm. or a good news article or a good news station. Uh, let's see. Let's just throw out another one. Uh, this is still Foreign Affairs. But, yeah, it was um, a couple of those. But, yeah, the viewers won't be able to see this, but this was the course packet right here. And I thought that was pretty cool. Trump and American policy. Mm-hmm. nice and so the instructors didn't they didn't try to give you a perspective they just said hey we're going to le- read these articles and we want you to compare them and and analyze them and come to your own conclusions is that kind of how they set it up sure sometimes they would kind of talk about them and, and talk about why it was important to to look at them and um they would give you like it was a it was cross it was cross-listed between uh political science and leadership studies so they would often talk about uh leadership um in in some of these roles um and uh maybe talk about some of trump's decisions um but they would they would look at both perspectives they would never try and lean towards saying like this was absolutely right or this was absolutely wrong uh, they really took an interdisciplinary um, and tried to take an unbiased uh, view towards it. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate that because it, at a certain level, it's kind of impossible to completely eliminate bias. And yep. Annie and I have talked about this on previous episodes about even when it, even if you're strictly measuring data as you would in a chemistry lab or doing a physics experiment you're still going to look at those data and even the numbers themselves are cultural inventions. They're, they're, they're symbols that represent some kind of reality that we all agree about. Mm. So there's, there's always that inherent bias just because we all perceive reality. There's right. very deep philosophical problems that philosophers have, haven't solved for thousands of years and may, we may never solve because of the limitations of just being physical creatures in the universe Right. And even, you know, talking nowadays, unconscious bias, society has taught us to see race because there are so many racial disparities nowadays um, and people have their own biases about races. And sometimes that unconscious bias can come through and Mm. people don't even recognize that it's there. Like nowadays, when you have conversations with people, um, people are quick to label people as racist and, and say things like that. But some people don't even realize that their unkind, unconscious bias exists. Um, and, you know, so when we talk about uh, some of the racial issues today brought up by uh, BLM, uh, you know, we talk about uh, how minority communities uh, live deeper in poverty and higher crime rates. And society has taught us that that people can be uh, violent in some of these situations, which is just not, 
you know, not true as, as a whole for a certain kind of race. And, you know, let's say you have somebody who gets in an elevator with another person who's a different race than them. You know, they'll, they'll hold their purse or, or feel like they, they're going to be attacked or something when that person is just living their life. They're in the same office building as you. Um, and it's society that has taught us to, to incorporate these unconscious biases within our lives. And sometimes people don't realize that it's there. Um, but it still is. And mm. it's true within our society uh, and just people as a whole. So. Yeah. So when you say society, what do you mean? What, um, like all every aspect of society? Or are you talking about specific institutions? Or? Sure. Uh, like I'm mostly talking about like the U.S. government, um, mm-hmm. especially when we talk when it comes to like talk about like policing uh, and authority. We have been uh, like nowadays, I feel like uh, our government in the U.S. is uh, mostly controlling through fear. You know, we fear that these things can happen and, and we, we feel like we need authority and protection when uh, there are a lot of cases when we just don't, you know, uh, things would be much better off. There was a 2017 report uh, in an article that I read that showed that less policing means less violence. You know, there are sometimes there are some issues, a lot of issues where police just being there incite violence. Uh, like today with today's protests, um, the police are meant to facilitate uh, protests, if at all. Um, and when you have uh, officers that come in to uh, restrict rather than to facilitate, you have uh, way higher incidence of violence. Um, and it's just simply there's authority where authority doesn't need to be there because we're taught that we need to fear things when we we don't really need to, you know, we can have a better society built around love and peace rather than fear and hate. And I think that mostly comes from, uh, yeah, institutions like the criminal justice system system um, that uh, disproportionately affects uh, black Americans and minorities um, that has taught us to feel a certain way towards those people. And uh, that has kind of led us in, into the unconscious bias we see today. Hmm. Yeah, I remember I was I, I wanted to look into that report because I think I was uh, I saw something I may have downloaded or something, but I didn't get mm-hmm. around to reading that. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've been really curious about lately. And so I've looked into it. And, and I, I, I'd say the main th- takeaway that I've gotten from the cursory reading that I've done on police brutality and looking at the statistics Mm-hmm. is that it's very complex and very nuanced. Yeah. And that, yeah. so the, without even having read the abstract of this report, um, can you, in just kind of going off of what you're saying, Sure. The, it sounds like that that's very, a very specific circumstance related to protests. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please come into, uh, come into, depending on what they're coming in to do with a protest that results in more or less violence. Is that my Sure, sure. Uh, it's also, it's the protest, but also um, in situations overall. So I, I also read another study, I can't remember what state it was from, but it showed that 83% of the calls that came into a police department uh, were non-crime related. Um, and so you see a lot of incidents of police brutality come up nowadays in situations that didn't even really involve a crime. Um, and so, uh, when you talk about, uh, less policing nowadays, it's those situations where 
police don't even really need to be involved where some of that that crime happens. Like police nowadays, uh, when you're involved in a car wreck, you know, why do you need a police officer there? Or if a person who has, uh, who is calling because they're suicidal, you know, and, and they're feeling suicidal about themselves, you know, there, there are other people that could handle that a little bit better. Or if there's a person who's drunk, um, I can give you an example uh, in my own personal life. Um, my grandpa, um, uh, dealt with alcoholism when he was younger. Um, and I remember at one point, uh, he was sitting in the front yard. My grandma had called the police to, to just, try and handle him he was sitting down on the ground waiting for them to come and the police had came and they picked him up and and they grabbed him by the neck and pushed him against the brick wall and were just beating him with a baton and Mm -hmm. nearly killed him and if it wasn't for my grandma grabbing the baton and, and stopping them um they they would have hurt him and you know i just think that situation could have been handled by somebody uh a little bit more trained uh, in mental health because that at that point it was really a mental health issue uh, rather than uh, a crime issue. Um, and I think that's where the yeah. disparity comes nowadays. Hmm. I, I agree with that. That I think that's a conversation that needs to be had in a lot more detail by mm-hmm. people that are looking at this issue very, very closely. Definitely. And, definitely. And so that, and the, the whole 83% of the calls are non-crime related that there's a, I know there is a distinction between breaking the law and it being criminal versus not criminal. Mm-hmm. So, sure. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into the details on that, mm-hmm. but that, so what, what I'm seeing there is that every, so it really depends on the community. I know that, policing in a huge city is going to mm-hmm. be way different than what I, what we have here in Holson, Montana with people with 4,500 people. Definitely. Like and, in, in yeah. more rural areas, like in, in down South police departments are, are, are a little bit more respectable down South when you have rural areas mm-hmm. because they really are police officers really are a vital part of the community that, yeah. that do de- that do deal with a lot. It's just as a society, especially with so much variability in, in, where police officers are we've asked so much of them and paid them so little you know um i think i think police me personally this is my personal opinion i think that police officers should be paid more to deal with crime related incidents um and and that's just my own personal stance on that Hmm. i agree with that i i don't so there there's been a lot of talk online of defunding the police Mm -hmm. and it's taken on different forms depending on who's talking about it sure most extreme versions of just what where i'm seeing like in new york they're just completely just taking the money away and really solving the root problems like you're talking about right uh, of what the what do what is the job what is what is their what is that their their telos their purpose what is the reason that this institution exists Mm -hmm. and the way i see it is they're there to to do two things to enforce the law and protect the constitution to make sure that our constitutional rights aren't being violated by other people Mm -hmm. or by the government Mm -hmm. but uh, so and that's a pretty specific job and it seems like they've stepped outside of that quite a bit yeah yeah and uh, and then but then there's also the the issue of scene safety. I know that this was a big problem in Seattle recently where the paramedics wouldn't go in to the um that area in Seattle that was being that had uh, protesters in the 
like mm-hmm. there was a lot of different people there. I'm not going to say that I know who all was there. Sure. I, I kind of doubt that it was all protesters. Yeah, sure. But yeah. anyways, the, the, the paramedics wouldn't go in and they kind of got a lot of heat for that. But I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm a trained first responder also. And one mm-hmm. of the number one things that we always were, it's drilled into our head, scene safety. Yeah. Scene safety. And if the scene is not safe, you don't go in because you might be creating more victims. Yeah, yeah. And you just don't know. And so that's what I wonder with mental health workers that go to deal with someone that's blacked out drunk or, mm-hmm. is, or you don't know what they're on. They, they have to consider their own safety too. And, but there's, that's the complexity there is. Sure, yeah. You, I mean, do you, I mean, it doesn't seem like just sending a cop with very minimal training because right. the training is very minimal, especially when compared to the military, for example. And, and the fact that they don't have, and I'm sure it varies by department and by precinct. And so there's a lot of, a lot to be talked about there too. And I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. I just yeah, know yeah. that, I just know that there's definitely a need for police at a certain point. So getting rid of them completely is not a good idea, but right. they, it seems like that their job is way too big and they're not, they don't have enough training to do what they're, they're being asked, asked to do in most circumstances. So, right. And man, I think it's nowadays a hard problem to solve, but we it, got, and, and it's so cool because now it's being talked about, but Holy crap, there's been a lot. I mean, there's been a huge cost, right? A huge cost. I wish, no, I wish nobody had to pay. Right. And I think nowadays when we talk about defunding the police, you know, um, I think, radicals of that group are are for abolish the police you know a lot of people think that would be a good idea overall i personally don't think so i think the the overall call to defund the police is about redistribute like redistributing some of their responsibilities so like there's not enough that goes into mental health in this country you know if we could if we could divest some of the money into mental health you know you can have those you know social workers who are trained in de-escalation and, and can understand scene safety and stuff and you can invest more into into training them for some of those things for those who are willing to you know and you can um I think, yeah, I think the redistribution of responsibilities is is a complex issue that um that many people are talking about nowadays mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe uh, another another institution that doesn't replace the police but removes a bunch of those to where they're not trained to deal with hyper violent situations yep. and their focus is more on these low level social yep. issues that like these day to day problems that most people like getting grandma's cat out of the tree and where they can yeah. still deal with scene safety and they can <laughs> still deal with and, and they have the training to deal with a violent situation should it arise and they, and they do work with police, but yeah, right. it's, it's a, because at one point the, the police didn't exist. I mean, that we, yeah. we all, we can, we can come up with new ideas. And I mean, like I said, we're create humans are really creative and we need these institutions because we're not very smart. Right. <laughs> and we need right. some kind of law and order because some people just don't care. And they yeah. will do some horrible things given the right. chance. So it's a, uh, but I mean, here in Montana, we have a, this very autonomous, like uh, self-reliance type of attitude. So mm-hmm. most of us have, we all have guns and we all yep. know how to use them. And we all understand the four rules of gun safety. It's like mm-hmm. all, even our kids. I mean, I, my, I had my first gun when I was nine. 
Mm-hmm. Now that's unthinkable to think. Of. Yeah. I mean, I struggled with like, man, I would never give my nine. <laughs> when my kid was nine. I don't think I would ever, I wouldn't have trusted him with a, a gun. Right. Right. So it's way, we, different times, the internet. I mean, there's so much change going on and yeah. uh, being a scientist is really hard now because where we have a huge responsibility to be objective and to, to read the literature and holy crap, if that isn't a never ending thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember at one point um, at, at the peak of everything going on now, I was reading about, you know, maybe seven or 10 articles uh, in the morning, just kind of like seeing what was being passed through the day, what people were talking about. Um, like at one point, I got like super too, too deeply invested in it. And that's when, you know, we were kind of talking earlier, that's when I, I really had to kind of take a step away um, and just kind of be like, okay, like, I, I can be involved in these issues, but I can't you know, put all of my brain space into it, you know, because um, I know there are people because I rely on people, you know, we as scientists rely on people who who know more than us uh, and we learn from them. And that's what some of these articles and the scientific studies are doing. And it's important to to know and understand and know that the work will be done. Like the, the world is changing nowadays. Um, and it's just important that we as people learn to learn and and to just kind of, you know, be more involved with that. Um, and so that, that's kind of where I take my stance is, is learning to learn about some of these situations, some of the issues. Like, um, I recently watched, um, the Netflix documentary, the 13th, this is not a plug, I promise. Um, but the (laughs) documentary, it was really good. I've been hearing a lot. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I've been hearing Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, it was really good and really showed some of the issues in the criminal justice system uh, in the U.S. Like the U.S. is probably uh, is 5% of the world's population, but it has nearly 25% of the world's incarcerated. And it just goes to show that we have a fundamental issue in society that that's causing that. We shouldn't have 25% of the world's incarcerated. Um, it, it shouldn't be that large. And it's like yeah. they're, they're, there's an issue that's there. And that, my question that, is, what is the issue? Did they actually really tease that out analytically? Mm-hmm. Or because I, I'm sure you may, you've probably heard this. I mean, whenever you work with data and statistics, it's drilled into your head. Correlation does not equal causation. Right. So right. did they actually make a real correlation there? Or because that, I mean, that it could, I, I can imagine that it could be multi layered. Where sure. Yeah. It has so, a role where, yeah, especially with privatized prisons and mm-hmm. having some kind of a financial incentive to have more prisoners that yeah. it makes sense that there'd be some abuse there. For right. Sure. What I'm thinking, though, is maybe a, another layer to that is how much emphasis is put on the rule of law in this country com- yeah. compared to other countries. So and then also we have this huge population. Um, Right. And so, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just guessing. Really. Right. So so what the documentary kind of shows is, you know, and even from some of the things that I've read, um, like, you know, it is shown that crime rates and po- that poverty is is more in minority communities. And so, you know, you if you have higher poverty, you have higher rates of crime um, and mm. even drug use. Um, and so police officers um can you know uh, racially profile people um, and put people into prisons, but also uh, because there are higher rates of crime and drugs, uh, normally it's uh, black people who are disproportionately affected, black people and minority people, um, and that's where you see the disproportionality in the criminal justice system. That there are more um, darker skinned individuals that are in the criminal justice system um, than there are. Uh, I think you know 
even as white people are a majority, you know, there are a higher percentage of, of minority people based on their population size that are disproportionately uh, entered into cr- the criminal justice system than there are white people. So there mm-hmm. is a disproportionality there. And it exists because instead of, uh, instead of addressing these issues of poverty and crime, um, it's instead you bring in authority to, to, to try and, and, and fear to try and control out of fear and put and put people in prisons and think that that will solve the issue. But it's really reinvesting in these communities that will help to solve the crime issue. And it really is just kind of a, a biased system. So we talk nowadays about homelessness. Um, and there are cities that will try and cover up homelessness, like spikes um, and benches that are slanted because they don't want people to see that homelessness is a problem. Uh, I recently watched a video where a city installed a bike rack underneath a bridge. Now, for the normal person, uh, they see, if they're looking at the policy and stuff, they're seeing that new bike racks were added. Great, cool, we love new bike racks in the city. But what the bike racks really did was to stop people from sleeping underneath the bridge. And those people no longer have a place to sleep and stay. And it's like, instead of addressing the issue of homelessness, they instead hide it. And I think that can be uh, likened to like authority, you know, trying to address the problem with authority rather than investing in those communities. Because there was an inherently racist policy in the U.S. called redlining that actively moved better goods, services, and educational opportunities out of minority communities and into wider communities, which is why you see the income disparities and education disparities in in race nowadays. Um, It's the inherent bias in society that has caused some of the racial disparities and caused race Mm. to be an issue. And and that's- Was it redlining primarily because of the state policies, the state laws? Um, I think it was like housing development. And then the realtors, they, they, they have to work within the system. Right. These policy, these uh, lawmakers. Yeah. Right. Because there's there's um, there's a difference between de facto and de jure racism. So, like, I think if I I have them right, I think Jim Crow was de facto racism where racism was inherent within the law. And then there's also um, a straight up racist law, right? A straight up racist law. And then de facto racism, like uh, Mayor Bloomberg's stop and frisk policy, where it uh, where it. It didn't. It wasn't inherently racist in the law, but in practice, it was. It, it allowed it allowed for more minority people to be stopped and frisked because of racial profiling, um, and it was racist in practice. And that's where some of these other laws lie. That it's not inherently racist within the law, but in practice, it is. And it's important to recognize that. Hmm. Yeah. So earlier you were talking about the the crime and the poverty, and that these the prison, the judicial system and how the prim- it's primarily filled with people with brown skin. And, and that's from my, from what I've seen, that's definitely the case that yep. uh, there's this massive disparity between the crimes that are being committed and among and which racial groups are coming from. Yep. And so again, I'm wondering the difference between correlation and causation and, the call just saying that that's because of racism mm-hmm. i'm wondering if it's more that the system isn't necessarily racist but because of these historical injustices that have occurred that created these sure, massive yeah. wealth disparities these yep. pockets of the country that are just have horrible crime rates and primarily there's black people in 
just dark skinned people living in those areas Mm -hmm. and it it exists and I'm aware of redlining and that's, I would say one of the most clear examples of actual institutional racism. Yeah. I don't see much of it these days. Redlining still happens, but as far as uh, saying that the United States is just racist institutionally, Mm -hmm. I think is a mistake because then it gets away from the fact that there is racism that exists and if we're just using blanket statements, we're not going to solve those problems that sure, exist. That so yeah. I, it, that's that's why, like, I'm wondering about the police and calling the police racist. I think mm-hmm. is also not it's it's overgeneralizing, and instead we could say, well, what about this precinct, and look at the leadership in that precinct. Sure. And, yeah. Or or maybe that that city or that state. Or or yep. that agency, depending on what level of analysis you're looking at, and that's right. the, I think the important uh, message I've gotten from my graduate studies is the yeah. level of analysis is really important if mm-hmm. you want to actually solve the problem. Otherwise, you're just kind of it's just pie in the sky ideas, and people will get burnt out because you're going in too many directions and you're not focusing your efforts. Right, like I think nowadays, like we have moved progressively as a society to get rid of a lot of those issues. Like redlining was banned 50 years ago. You know, it, it really is the historical aspects that take more, uh, more priority over today's issues than anything. Like there are way less. The effects are still there. Right. And I think that's what people are saying. Oh, so the system is racist. And I'm thinking, well, no, I don't know if it's racist, but the the Mm -hmm. effects of the old racist system is still there. Right. So, and, I don't know what the solutions are to those, mm-hmm. those problems. Yeah. I have ideas, but I don't live. I've spent time in these communities, but I've, I didn't grow up there. Right. I, I don't have to deal with those problems day to day. Right. I, care. I care about those problems because, in my opinion, the better everyone does, the, is, that's, it's just in everyone's best interest for yeah. everybody to, doing, to be doing better. To that's have true. more access to everybody's inherent talents and skills is in everyone's best interest, mm-hmm. especially if we actually have a free market, which I don't think we have right now because of crony capitalism and the way that these huge corporations are involved in our government. Yep. Anyways, that's, that's a whole another, yeah. that's a yeah. huge topic that um, I'm glad to hear more people talking about today. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to um, uh, those communities kind of, kind of helping themselves, you know, like for me, uh, well, nowadays there's a culture of, of move out where you're from, like get out of where you're from and look for opportunity and search. But, you know, for me personally, I, I have gone and looked for opportunity and know that I will return back to my community and know that, you know, I can take like all of the, the science that I've been learning, like coastal land loss, um, and, and use my brain and the science and, and the classes that I've been using to help my community because nobody has ever looked at how land loss is affecting our tribes. And we as a community will have that behind us and, and we'll be able to see how much land loss has affected us. And, um, and it's, it's important nowadays um, that we help people be educated and and give them as much opportunity as they can so they can go back to their communities and and be leaders in their communities and, and help them in any way they can. Hmm. You really, I really love that, that the, stressing leadership and um that we we need strong leaders mm-hmm. and at at some point if there's no leader then you got to step up and do it yep. whether you want to or not whether yep. you suck at it or you're good at it uh, you sometimes you just got to learn on the job that's right 
so just thinking back to your project and the 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 power that GIS can have because it's that visual that that really pow- real powerful visual that people can see the um, I, I was really curious because uh, I know I, I read through your, your abstract and I was thinking about how you did your research and mm-hmm. you found that there the there is a difference between subsistence and sea level rise as, yep. and the the factors that those two variables played in the loss of tribal lands. Yeah. So what, which which of those two factors, whether was it subsistence or sea level rise? And yes. What changes? What uh, what, uh, what was the most of? Uh, important one yeah so subsidence has been an issue um th- through the world oh, subsidence all, yeah. my bad subsidence. not subsistence subsidence. subsidence yeah so subsidence has been an issue um altogether all louisiana naturally subsides when the mississippi was being deposited um all of the land that exists uh, the coastal delta it was kind of sprayed like a fire hose um if through all of the settings because the mississippi has is uh, the largest tributary system in the country um it has many branching uh tributaries and a lot of sediment comes down and that's how louisiana was built um now naturally all of this sediment is kind of fluffy and over time it will start to compact and sink down um and now there's a famous sign uh a uh, climate scientist, her name is Catherine Hayhoe, who is great at having conversations, who talks about um, climate change being a damage multiplier. Um, and so mm. um, just like the situation with the Australian wildfires, um, wildfires are always an issue and people have been setting fires all the time and they cause, but climate change has caused the uh, temperatures to be hotter and allowed for the fires to burn much more ravenously than ever. Um, and the same thing happens with Louisiana. Um, the land naturally sinks and naturally erodes. But uh, with subsidence, along with climate change and sea level rise, um, it, the land loss is being multiplied. And that's why people throw out the number today that Louisiana, uh, at a statistic average, uh, including hurricanes and stuff, is losing about a football field a day of land. And that's where that comes wow. from. Yeah. That's, that's a lot when you put, put it in that way. I love, mm-hmm. uh, I love analogies like that. Yeah. So that's the issue with Louisiana is that, um, that both of these factors are playing into it and that climate change is only multiplying it. Because these, these, uh, these things happen naturally. Um, it's, it's a natural cycle of life. Um, but because of human-induced climate change, it happens so much. And climate change has always happened naturally, but within the scale of tens of thousands of years, uh, it's human-induced climate change that has caused uh, this kind of scale to happen on decades rather than tens of thousands of years now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I used to be super worried about when I was younger. I, that's part of why I got into prepping and I was obsessed with being a prepper for probably mm-hmm. about four years. Yeah. Until yeah. I realized I was just wasting my life away. And it wasn't <laughs> worth it. I, I'm glad I did it though. I got a lot of cool skills and, and yeah, yeah. useful skills at it. But, uh, the, when I found out about the climate change and I, and it, of course it was a Netflix documentary Oh yeah, I watched, and at the end of it, I cried, and then I got super <laughs> pissed off, <laughs> and I was and I was just on fire. I thought I'm gonna change the world, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We can't because I that I, it was about peak oil, and that oh, was very yeah. deeply the conceptually it's very deeply tied to climate change as far as its relation to CO2 emissions and things like that. Right. Well, and, when I I got into grad school, I, I actually started to look into this. And I realized, holy crap, this is really, really complex. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really complex problem. 
Yeah. And even Louisiana, um, you know, the oil industry, uh, the extractive processes that, that um, took earth and, and upheld earth and, and to help uh, increase production in the world and cause so much of the capital that we see today, because even the United States was uh, its capital and money was reliant on stolen lands. Um, it was the stolen land that that really uh, and and the people's detriment that caused a lot of the capital to be built as we know today. And yeah. so uh, the oil well, it's kind is- of semantic. I mean, you could call it conquered land. Sure. Also. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, if if it's stolen, then every almost every other culture throughout history is stolen their land because sure, we, sure. we conquered we conquered stuff too that's that's I mean, true that's the true. blackfeet nation we rose pretty quick and man mm-hmm. you ever heard the stories of uh what was it the uh i might be getting it wrong comanche not comanche is it comanches or Apache? i've heard of comanche like I've they just like so they were like badass warriors that just yeah they're kind of like the three the spartans of yeah the yeah man i had no idea and i started looking into them recently and heard some uh, research from anthropologists that they've done on it. I thought, holy damn. I had, <laughs> I thought the black, I, th- I always thought the black feet, we were just the most awesome warriors, but I didn't know about the Comanche. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. I have to concede that. Uh, I, I always talk about it as stolen awesome. lands, but you know, I think conquered is a much better word for it. Um, so it's yeah. no less brutal. It's no less. Yeah. I mean, morally, I would say they're both equally yeah, yeah. horrible. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the Anyways, oil industry, I don't, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just hear that word stolen a lot and I don't agree with it. Yeah. I think conquered is a great word. I think that's great. I will start using that more often. Um, but yeah, it, the oil industry has also played a huge role in Louisiana's land loss. Um, if you look, uh, if you look at a map of the, uh, oil pipelines and, um, the old, uh, extractive, um, just machines uh Mm -hmm. it's it's written throughout louisiana it looks like so much zigzag and cross there's pipelines everywhere um and a lot of them are abandoned and aren't there anymore and because they have extracted and there's huge space in the land uh it causes a lot of the subsidence to happen too you Mm. see large lakes form around those machinery and those pipelines and stuff and one of the biggest things not only for land loss but also the ecosystem um whenever you have these navigation channels so Louisiana naturally has a lot of bayous and twisting and turning rivers and stuff. Um, and uh, whenever there's the, they call it the home nav, which runs right through our tribal, ba- our tribal grounds. Um, it's a straight uh, canal that runs straight through to New Orleans. And that allows for the salt water to intrude into a lot of the freshwater estuaries and places that need the freshwater. And so you see a lot of uh, vegetation death. Um, growing vegetables is really hard in Louisiana because of the saltwater intrusion. Um, and a lot of the, the natural ecosystems have been interrupted. So not only do you have land loss, but you also have uh, like large scale ecosystem disruption. Uh, and that's some of the biggest problems. Um, mm. So yeah, it is uh, like a lot of factors that come into play when, it, when you talk about Louisiana. Yeah. Dang. So yeah, that's, is it, um, is it introducing a more homogeneous or is it creating more heterogeneity as far as those subside, subsiding, subsiding zones? Yeah. Is that the word that you would call it? Um, yeah. And, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, that, that would be interesting because I mean, if you have the mix of saltwater and freshwater, I guess you could have more heterogeneous areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have more mixing, um, which could have the potential to 
to have could be beneficial or detrimental i guess it depends on which plants uh, yeah you're looking at like saltwater cordgrass, um, uh, Spartina alterniflora, which is the, the most common cordgrass across the country, um, is, does great with saltwater and is the reason why it's so prevalent on coastal plains. Uh, mm. Spartina has, uh, if you have more saltwater going inland, then the Spartina will be able to handle more inland things, which is, you know, when we talk about coastal erosion, Spartina uh, is great at mitigating wave action. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about planting Spartina and things that can deal with the increasing in saltwater, we can we can use more of that up along the coast to help mitigate some of the wave uh, erosion and, and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It and is so did you find so it, were the native peoples was were the there are there on reservations there or is it a different setup? No, so uh, our our tribes are only state recognized. We aren't oh, federally recognized. Okay. Yep. So uh, everybody just kind of lives around. So you have a couple of different tribes down there. Um, you have the Grand Cayuse Dulac, which is the more, the most westerly tribe, which is us, uh, which is right next to uh, Tahoma down south. Then you have the Ildejon Charles Band, uh, which is has been more in the news lately because they're kind of situated on a tiny island that is slowly eroding away and and uh, being massively inundated uh, as we speak. Uh, the Pontchartrain, uh, the Bayou Lafouche, and Grand Bayou Village. And it's those five tribes that are most situated along uh, the most vulnerable parts of the coast. Um, and those are in order from uh, west to east. Uh, and uh, it's those five tribes. And only state mm-hmm. recognized. So it's kind of those tribes, most of the people kind of live around each other. Um, so it's hard. Like nowadays, the government loves boundaries, right? Which is what I've worked with a lot. Like where is our tribe's boundary and where are our people at? Uh, and so... It's just kind of like where our biggest concentration of people are, but there is no help from the federal government government, and it people just kind of live around the area, which is why it's so hard to define a boundary nowadays. Uh, it's about concentration more than it is a, a situated land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised we got this far into our conversation without talking about boundaries. Polygons, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get into GIS, you're going to deal with some polygons, right? <laughs> so, right. But uh, so, th- how did how did they end up where they're at now? Is it uh, is it that kind of what we were talking, alluding to earlier about the historical mm-hmm. poverty and just how did they wind up where they're at? Yeah. So uh, the tribal groups were forced into the lands in about the 18th century uh, by the arrival of the Acadians. Uh, and they thought that the land that we are in now was kind of uninhabitable and people didn't like natives all that much at that point. And the Acadians drove, uh, the native, native Americans down into the, the most Southern parts of the land. Um, and that's where, that's why we reside there now because we were hmm. pushed into what was thought was unlivable, which nowadays is, we're, we're knowing that is true. It is certainly becoming unlivable, which is why we have massive conversations and which is why this is like a huge part of, of what I think about all the time is like relocating or what can we do to save it? Now, when we talk about the government nowadays, um, uh, like Louisiana has a master coastal plan that is supposed to restore the coast within about 40 to 50 years. Okay. And so our Tribal lands are in the most vulnerable areas, and this plan relies on resedimentation to happen after a couple of decades. 
And the problem with native communities is that by the time that this resedimentation is supposed to happen, these communities are going to be gone. And once the resedimentation happens, those lands then belong to the state, which gives them mineral rights mm. and mineral access. And that's where you get some of the exploitation. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a whole, that's a whole, that's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, you know, we're only state recognized, but we're supposed to be recognized by the state. And, and a lot of times the state often ignores some of our, our heedance and cries and stuff. And so I can give you a good example of the Elders on Charles Band. Um, we, they have recently been trying really hard to think about relocation. A lot of people don't want to move from where they're from because that's home. You know, you, you know shrimping and, and fishing and this is your way of life and your culture. Um, and it, it's hard to move away from that. But if, if they did have to relocate and move, they would want to do it their own way. So there was this Rockefeller climate change um, competition that they applied to be for where they created their community, where they had like a, a fishing spot and affordable housing and stuff. And this is what they would want. And um, it was uh, it was a really it was a really great project. And they went they won. Uh, they ended up winning. And it was. I can't remember for a hundred and something million dollars to help relocate wow. these people and do that. Um, but by the time they got the money, you know, there uh, some something or other happened and the government, um, you know, at one point there was a quote where, where somebody said, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was pretty much to the effect of uh, these people don't know how to handle this kind of money. Mm-hmm. And um, it was completely taken over by the government and we, uh, you know, those tribes haven't really seen any of that money and are trying to actively pull away from it because they, instead of doing what they wanted, they instead bought unfertile land that was not wanted by anyone and bought it with the money instead. And we're going to start doing things that none of the tribes really wanted at all. Um, and that's where they really got taken advantage of. And now they the grant that they were supposed to have won and, and, and have a hope for relocating um, uh, HUD and the government working together. And, and now we, we, we see none of that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the government typically doesn't do a very good job at many things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think they, I, I'm an advocate for less government and more community based type stuff mm-hmm. and um, keeping our, Especially economically too. That's something that I've seen happen around here in Montana is the relocalizing of the economy a little bit more, mm-hmm. mostly due to the pandemic. Right. But, uh, but I've, I think that's, I've been seeing that as one of the root things that could help a lot of current problems with transportation and sourcing and how well, rounded people's diets are and how connected they are to their food. So there's a lot of different things that a lot of benefits to having a local food and economic system. Right. Right. But I mean, even our government and where we get our funds for our, for our community projects and where our taxes go. Mm -hmm. That I think is something I would like the federal government to be much less involved in. Right. Partially, mostly because of things like that. I've seen so many and heard of so many programs that, either just failed before they ever started or they just fizzled out and they never really f- fully got to their mandate yeah. that they had set out for themselves. So yeah, it's a, yeah. and it's at the whim of 
policymakers, which happens mm-hmm. in cycles. And it's a very unstable way to look at our future, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think nowadays, like, what's so great about um, people protesting in the streets is that not only is this, you know, now, it, not only is it about police brutality and issues within the government, but also this is about building a world around love and peace more than fear and hate and, and bringing uh, our focus back to the communities, like reinvesting in communities and mental health and, and just supporting those communities and, and having those bubbles flourish. Um, and I think that's, that's important, you know, for the people to, instead of doing what's right for corporations to do what's right for the people and, and, and go back to a people focused world rather than what it is now. Hmm. Yeah, because it's much harder for a corporation to buy the pockets of people involved in local things that have a direct interest in the success of that programming. Right. Uh, If they get found out, then it's going to be their neighbor that they're going to have to live with. Yeah. So, So, and like today, Louisiana is probably, you know, last in line as one of the poorest states in the country. And we are the epicenter of oil and gas, especially within the Gulf. And it's like with so much money being pumped through, you know, why is Louisiana not one of the richest or, or not so much higher in the ladder? And it's because of government corruption. In industrial zip codes, um, 99.99% of the tax exemptions that came through were all approved. So the oil and gas industry pays no tax on the land that they're extracting from. And it's simply because of corporations and government, the working together against the people. And, and that's why Louisiana is so absent with money is because of these ex- extractive processes and because the corporations have such a hold on our government. Yeah. yeah. And it's so obvious. It's right in front of our face, too. It's yeah. lobbying and campaign contributions. Yeah. That right there, man. And I mean... It's not, it's, it's not a very good system and it seems to be causing a lot of problems. I don't, I don't have the answers. I don't know what the Mm -hmm. replacement or how we, how are, how can they campaign without the contributions? I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that having these huge international companies able to affect our, the outcomes of our elections so much, is not in the best interest of our country. That's for right. Sure. I, I even recently watched a congresswoman uh, go against uh, or, or talk to someone. I can't remember what board they were talking to, um, but, you know, she was asking them and and pretty much, you know, you can have somebody who runs for office or, or runs for something that can completely be funded by oil and gas or, or coal. And there is no limit or restriction to what policy they're allowed to touch or or um, recommend. And they can go in completely funded by oil and gas and change uh, change laws. And another thing that they could do is that they can invest stock in these companies like in coal or oil and gas and then deregulate them and make quick money because those stocks go up. Uh, the, the price of those stocks go up. And I'm, that's just a way that, you know, greed can take over and is allowed to exist within our system. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of that's really interesting um, because it seems like that's definitely a a major problem and causes a lot of societal ills is greed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've been, I've heard people blame it on capitalism, but people can be greedy, greedy in a socialist system too. It's a, it's a, it's a human, it's one of the dark sides of our nature. 
mm-hmm. just like violence. Everybody has the potential and capability capability to be violent. Yeah, just like we all have the potential and capability to be greedy, yep. and um, so and now now it's just out of control, man. The, mm. At the highest level, yeah, and, and uh, it's like. I think that's something we can agree on for sure. What, no matter what your political beliefs are, is that the federal government needs to change. Yeah. And I think most people agree that it needs to get less involved in people's yeah. community life. With all of the conversations that I've had with people, there is one thing that everybody, no matter what side of the spectrum, has agreed on. And it's pretty much that our government needs to change, that our government has not really been for the people. And everybody, no matter what spectrum it's been on, has pretty much agreed to that and Mm. yeah yeah so did you did you have you done modeling no model i no i did because i found a website where Uh you have a modeling profile really oh (laughs) i i know it's a weird segue but okay i i maybe i did and it's weird and maybe it's someone with your name that and it's uh and it looks like you have no facial hair Uh uh-huh yeah uh, am i how how old do i look because there was uh, it says you're 22 really it looks like an older picture when you were younger yeah um i remember i i tried to get into it like i remember when i was younger my mom whenever i was really young my mom tried to get us into modeling we were in like a small magazine or something like that, just because we had the opportunity to go in and just like get our pictures taken and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah it looks pretty legit. Like uh, he had a professional do it and everything. Really? Yeah. There's like photos and what's and the it, website. It's uh exploretalent.com. Oh yeah. I do. I do know that website. I think I did upload some pictures and, and tried to get involved in that. I think those might be my senior pictures that I put oh, on okay. there. If that's right. Um, yeah. It's like around downtown in the city and there's graffiti and stuff. And <laughs> yep, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And like, you know, for me personally, I am super into film. Um, I would love to be an actor at some point. Um, like I just, love i'm very expressive and social and i feel like that's a a big part of like film and stuff you know not the whole part but you know i i've always wanted to be in like film and stuff so i think at one point i did go and explore talent and try and like upload some pictures and thought about it but never capitalized or tried to look for anything so yeah that's funny okay (laughs) yeah so and do you think in another life you would have been more involved in that like maybe acting or something oh yeah i think in in another life, there are two paths I could have seen myself going down. Um, psychology. I would have loved uh, to go into human and behavioral psychology. Oh, yeah, me too. Social man. psychology. It's just so interesting. And I love talking to people. And I think the biggest thing with understanding relationships is, you know, thinking back about GIS is boundaries. You know, like everybody mm. has certain boundaries and stuff. And understanding those is kind of the key of understanding social relationships. Yeah, and shifting and boundaries too over that's, time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Like being a more open person um, allows you to increase your boundary and like increase your closeness with somebody who's more social. Like you you, you allow yourself to, to push the bounds and kind of be more open and be more sociable. And, you know, in another life, I would have loved to study psychology and, and been a part of that. Um, in another life, still still hoping. You know, because I'll go shoot a movie for a couple of months and then come back and do what I need to do. Um, but, you know, I, I would have loved to be more into acting and film and maybe have gone to like film school or something. Because I know there's a great film school in New Orleans that um, if I didn't get the opportunity with Williams that I did, uh, I would have loved to go there. 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That's a shared passion of, of ours is the behavioral psychology. Mm -hmm. And I first got introduced to that when I was doing some coaching a while back and I got into behavioral cognitive or cognitive behavioral therapy. And I I was just fascinated. I thought, wow, this makes so much sense. And what it's got, whoa, holy crap. It's established in research. This is people actually use this stuff. Professionals use it with a lot of success. And, and then I started looking into psychologists and behavioral psychologists. And are, are you familiar with uh, Jonathan Haidt's work? Uh, no, I'm not. How do you spell Haidt? H-A-I-D-T. And he wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's a really, really fascinating idea. And that's where I got that the notion that social media is causing so much problems for especially teenagers, especially teenage girls is him and his colleagues and people around the country. They've been crunching the numbers and they've found these trends and they've done multi varied analyses. So they didn't just do the spurious correlations, but they actually look at looked at things from a multivariate perspective. Yeah. And it's a, and I I love that. I love statistics. So I'm I'm always looking at statistical robustness whenever I look, whenever I hear people making claims about stuff and yeah, yeah. People can lie with, you can, uh, statistics don't lie, but people can lie with statistics. That's right. That's right. I often talk about bias within news articles nowadays, right? Because, you know, people will often argue, oh, you're reading a bunch of articles. Like, how do you know, you know, whatever, but it's important to know, you know, the background behind them. So you, Mm -hmm. you, let's say you you have um, a news article, like I'll just make a, let's just say there's a study that comes out uh, when we talk about racial bias, let's say there's a study that comes out that says 75% of black people are criminals and 25% are not. And then there's another pie chart that says 75% of white people are not criminals and 25% are. You can have a news article that says, well, black people are just inherently criminals, but a good news article will look at it even more and be like, why does this exist? Because people aren't inherently violent. Yeah, the you know? first one's yeah, the first one's a race racist. Yeah. That yeah. because of the color of your skin, you're gonna be a criminal. Right. Based off of right. statistics. No, that's not what this says, bro. Right, right. It's it's it, you can a good news article will look at historical context and see why it exists because you know And it's nobody... multivariate too. There's there's other variables. Right. Always. Right. Always. Um so yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that is important. And that that's hard though. A lot of, I I love statistics, so I I, I kind of had a natural natural inclination when I took those courses in, as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. But I and I TA'd them and from my experience TAing statistics is it's not there's a steep learning curve. People yeah. have a really hard time with it and it seems to come down to terminology and definitions and understanding the semantics of statistics mm-hmm. and sure. like under learning all these definitions and it's like a whole nother language and it's, yeah it uses mathematics but it's not really a math it's it's, it's a whole it's a whole it's an own little beast right but even awesome. nowadays like subjects in school um whenever you go and let, like if you learn chemistry you know chemistry is a certain kind of language like it yeah. really is and it's communication 
like you're learning how to communicate in that language. And once you understand that language, you can do a lot more in it. Same thing with any of the other subjects like math. Math is a language. Um, statistics is a certain kind of language. And once you kind of understand that language, like for me, working with the GIS is so much easier now because I know the language. Like I know what things mean and I can kind of search and Google and, and figure things out on my own because I'm more familiar with that language. So if I was trying to do some of the things I do now, like without that language back, background, I would just kind of be a stick in the mud, you know, not really knowing where to go or what to do, but understanding that language is, is important. Hmm. It yeah. is, it, it really is. And so definitions matter big time. And, um, and, and it's tough because different disciplines will use similar or the same word, but it'll mean or, and have different applications <clears throat> in that different uh, field of study. That's right. So uh, always defining terms when, especially when you're working cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, super-disciplinary. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why things. I'm glad you brought up the, the point about stolen lands because conquer is just such a better word for that. I, I think often it's more use, poignant. Yeah, I think yeah. it is. I think that's great. Because yeah. that means stolen. It's like, uh, maybe, yeah, I can kind of see that. But uh, mm-hmm. usually you don't sign away your land if someone's stealing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so that's... That's very specific to being defeated in wars and being conquered. Right. And we have a very unique situation as far as our relationship to states and federal governments as being mm-hmm. indigenous people in this country. Right. So it uh, seems apt, more apt, using the word conquer. Yeah, I think so. So that, uh, yeah, I, I I'm really glad that we got to talk today and I feel like we pretty much touched on a lot of things and you made some really good points and I've uh, like, like I alluded to this earlier, but I I don't really get on social media much, but I do occasionally Mm -hmm. just to kind of see what people are saying. And right. I see that a lot people posting things and, and then I ask myself questions and I look into it a little bit and find out wait, it's more way more complex than this. Right. And this post isn't really helping the situation. It's right. just a meme and it doesn't, it doesn't really touch at the issue and it, it, it actually might be more, more damaging. Yeah. Like for me, Even if the intent is good. Right. Like for me, I have both sides on my, on my Facebook feed because I've been, you know, I go to school up North in the Northeast. I have a lot of connections and people from the Northeast that I have um, who have way more liberal views. Um, and then I, I also live in the South and I have a lot of family and other members I'm connected to here that have a lot of, you know, conservative views and not to bring partisan politics into it. Um, but, you know, it's important to see uh, both sides of the spectrum because yeah. I, it, give, it allows me to have both lenses to look at, to, to form my own lens of opinion. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like that. And that reminds me of um, something from another behavioral psychologist that I've read. And he has this book. You may have heard of it. He's actually a, more fam- a little more well-known than Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. But, uh, his name is Jordan Peterson. Are you aware of him? Yeah, yeah, I do know yeah. Jordan Peterson. I actually He's got to his... be one of the most controversial, uncontroversial guys I've ever lived. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, how hated he is by certain people. I'm, I just wonder. And like, I mean, I can understand it, but I, I, it makes no sense if you have if you really looked deeply at his work. Yeah, even more controversial than Steven Pinker, if you know oh, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's which is interesting because I agree so much with so much more with Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Really, I, I, what drew me to him was his emphasis on responsibility. 
And yeah. it's something that I've been that I've been talking about and holding as very important in my own life for a long time. And it was at the basis of my coaching practice, which mm-hmm. was very minimal. I didn't really take that very far. I, I would say that's one of my failed endeavors. I only worked with mm-hmm. people and didn't, it didn't really take off. But anyway, what I learned some valuable lessons and one of the most important ones was very deeply tied to my culture also is the, the role of responsibility. What's your responsibility? Yeah, that's so important. And it's tied to your purpose. And the meaning that you're going to find in life is your responsibilities. And right. that's the, and that Jordan Peterson, that's like, I would say his number one message is personal responsibility. Not that mm-hmm. it's, that's the only where it stops, because that's connected right. to your community. It's connected to your society and the larger human race. The, right. Everybody. Um, like for me, it's really interesting stuff. But anyways, uh, ju- I just want to finish my thought real quick about yeah. his the rule. One of his rules in that book is to always assume the person you're talking to knows something you don't. Yes. And, yes. Um, and ta- just hit talking to the partisan politics, we have to be able to talk to each other and listen. And yeah. Not, I, and then not hate each other when we disagree. Right. Right. Like for me, uh, you know, one of the things that comes up when it, we talk about conflict resolution is tribalism. Uh, oh, yeah. especially with partisan politics nowadays is that mm-hmm. whenever you approach from two different sides, you have so much more friction. Like the reason, like my grandma is much more conservative than I, than I am. I say I have views from both. Um, but my grandma is, is much more conservative than I am, but we never have really bad conversations. Um, we always have good conversations because we approach it from, from one perspective, family, um, and I recently had a conversation with another one of my family members who's a conspiracy theorist um, who completely believes that coronavirus is completely made up by socialists who want to run the country and, you know, some other things that, you yeah. know, is, is kind of crazy. Um, and I, whenever we had a conversation, you know, I, I really assumed that she knew things that I didn't, you know, and, and I wanted to know. I'm like, where where do you where do you hear it from? And, and I also challenged her, you know, like if she loves Trump. You know, and, and I challenged her, like, why, you know, and, and, and one of the things she also said, you know, me going up to college, she said that college is just brainwashing all of these kids. And, and I asked her, do you think that I can't think for myself? And she's like, well, no, I, I know you can think for yourself. And you could just kind of see glimpses of her understanding. And it's because we're family that we were able to have such a great conversation. And Mm. Catherine Hayhoe is really great at talking about like conversations. Like she's also a mother. And when she talks about climate change, she's like, do do you have kids? And, and they're like, yeah, I have kids. I love my kids. And she's like, I love my kids too. And I just want to make sure that they have a better world for themselves or however she has her conversations. And when we talk about personal responsibility and leadership nowadays, you know, for me, so much of my life is motivated just to become a better leader. Like I want to have, I know that becoming a better, a better person overall means having different life experiences and different life challenges. Um, challenges are really what help you grow in life and overcoming adversity uh, and taking on as much challenge and adversity as I can to become the best leader I possibly can for my people um, is, is part of that. And hmm. you know, a big part of that is looking at both sides and being open to the possibilities and opportunities that exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that, it's really hard. It is really hard, especially if your opinion on something is so deep and tied to your identity that mm-hmm. it actually challenges your worldview when somebody yeah. is telling you that you're wrong about it. 
Yeah. So to be able to, to being able to put your emotions aside and just ask questions and, and take, just assume that they know something you don't. And, um, I'd rather know if I'm wrong than try to be right. And I'd rather right. understand right. than try to be right. And that's something, a constant challenge for me. Yeah. And that goes back to our conversation about balance. You know, it's important to be logical and emotional. It's important to try and balance both of those things, you know, to, yeah. to, to have empathy, um, but to also think logically. And I think that's where some of the balance needs to come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And um, of course, we, we, we typically course. what we like to do is we like to ask our guests a question of uh, just to finish things off. And sure. that is what are you what would your three tips be to a young native person in the United States, a young indigenous person? What would yeah. your three tips be to for them to be indigenous in the modern world? How are I you think- interpret that? I think my biggest thing, because, you know, for me, I've always struggled in the middle ground because, you know, I look, uh, I look, I'm more white passing or white coded, uh, as some people would say. And I have always struggled with my identity and, and who I am. And I think my biggest thing is, is to embrace yourself and your culture and, and to know, you know, just to be proud in that no matter who you are, um, and you don't need anybody else's judgment to, to understand who you are and where you come from and what you can be prideful of. Uh, my second one is help your community. You know, you don't need to go off and, and in search of opportunity and just completely, you know, leave. You can bring, you can use your brain and, and the knowledge that you collect to, to, to help your community and to help them rise up and to be a leader within that. Um, and, hmm. My third one is to learn your past, you know, learn some of your culture and your ways. Take time to speak to your elders, uh, learn some of the language. That's how you really keep the culture alive is, is by learning and engaging with the people who know it, especially when we talk about oral traditions. You know, oral tradition has been such a huge part in Native community. Um, speak to your elders. Speak to those who you know know more than you, and that will help you more than anything. And, and those would be my, my three tips to being indigenous in the modern world. Hmm. Nice. I like yeah. those. Those are good ones. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And that's a, a, a one, one way we also like to end it is, do you happen to know any way to say bye in your, in your language? Um, uh, I think hello is Yakoki. Um, uh, or that might be another language that we use. Um, I don't know by, I don't know my language a whole lot. Uh-huh. Um, I think it could be as hello. Um, or yeah, I, I, I don't know my language a whole lot. Um, cause you know, for me, I I've moved so much in my life that, uh, whenever hurricane Rita hit when I was younger, um, uh, it was about when I was in second grade that I moved away from my home. Uh, and mm-hmm. part of the language was, was really lost for me. And my grandpa was always on the tugboat. He used to be a tugboat captain. Uh, and so he would try and teach me when I was younger about, you know, some words and stuff. Uh, but as a, as a young person, you know, I was, didn't want to be on the phone. I just wanted to be outside playing in the yard. Um, so I'm learning more as I go along, but I, I don't know how to say yeah. goodbye in my language. That's cool. Any little bit that you can learn, that's good. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious. I'm, 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 curious about all how these different things sound in different yeah. people's languages sure sure so, all right well thank you well that's yeah, the thank end you of for our having show, everybody 
Devin Parfait. Why don't you go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my Twitter and Instagram handles are Devin Parfait. So it's just my name. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn, you know, if you want to connect with me that way. Um, so just search up my name and you can find me a bunch of places. Uh, it's usually Devin Parfait, just my name. Cool. And any anything coming up that you that you're involved in that you want people to check out? Um, no, nothing yet. Uh, I think we have some documentaries talk that we've been having in the works, um, that will be kind of way off in the future. Uh, I want to have, you know, a, a big part of my project now is, um, the human perspective. I'm starting to get B-roll and film interviews with people with coastal land loss who have had that perspective. Um, and at some point that will be on a YouTube channel, uh, and the YouTube channel will be my name also. So. Sweet. Cool. I look forward to seeing that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And Thank you so much for having me. I yeah, really and I hope to. I mean, we 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 hit on so many different things. I think we could definitely do this again if you'd give us the honor of coming on. Of course, anytime, anytime. Cool. Yeah. So, everyone, look forward to Devin Parfait 2.0 in the, Thank you in the future. All right, I'll look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes. And five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah. And you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. Thank you for lending us your ears, and now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>